and verse 35, Mark's Gospel, chapter 4 and verse 35. And it says, And the same day when even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was in the ship, and there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part, the lower part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his precious and eternal word this evening. Let me say to you tonight that the Christian life is never plain sailing. It's rarely a a smooth ride. It can be a real roller coaster of faith, a journey, as it were, from earth to heaven, a journey of ups and downs. Sometimes it may seem calm and, and very sunny, as it were, other times tremendously stormy, and our faith falters. And the Lord seems to be sleeping sometimes in the midst of these storms, and we ask ourselves, does Jesus really care? You know, sometimes life can be very fearful, and we may feel like the storm is going to swallow us up, that we're overwhelmed, we feel besieged, we feel consumed, crushed, beaten. Storms are never easy. They can be very, very frightening. I wonder, are you going through a storm in your life tonight? I wonder if the waves of life's sea are hammering against your vessel and you feel as though you're certain to go beneath the water. You know, that's exactly how these disciples felt in our reading tonight. And this is where we begin our study, because I want you to see that the storm is a crisis, first of all, for the saints. Look in verses 23 and 24 of Matthew chapter 8. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Now we have to remember that many of Jesus' disciples were in fact fishermen. And in that regard we might say, well weren't they a little foolish to set sail against such prevailing winds and to set out to the sea without any thought of the weather that laid before him. But first of all, we have to say this, fishermen in Bible times did not have the skills of meteorology that we have today to know in advance what the weather is going to be. They depended very heavily upon the prevailing conditions at the port that they left from. And so it would have looked as they started out like a clear night that it wasn't going to be unduly rough that they could make it to the other side quite safely and in time. And there was no indication that this short crossing across Galilee would be anything other than uneventful. But then this storm came apparently out of nowhere. And it's interesting, you know, when you read that word storm in the scriptures here, 
It indicates something peculiar about the storm, that it was no ordinary wind, that this wasn't just a, a prevailing wind, it wasn't a strong wind, it wasn't even a gale force wind. It actually refers to a whirlwind, a wind with violent and furious gusts accompanied by floods or rains and throwing everything topsy-turvy. Have you ever been on a boat like that? If you've ever been on the uh, ferry going across the Irish Sea and, uh, you know, being thrown around from pillar to post, it's not fun, is it? Uh, you know, I remember, and we coming back from our honeymoon, we went on honeymoon to Edinburgh, and uh, this is how our marriage was going to start. I should have realized this was a bad sign right here, but uh, on the way home, we get on the ferry, and uh, Hazel says to me, I'm hungry, would you get me something to eat? Well, it was a rough night. It was a very rough night. And you know what it's like on the ferry, particularly back in the 1980s. You know, it wasn't as well equipped as ferries are today. And so you had to queue up. And there was a great big queue up to the uh, canteen and up to where the food uh, bar was and to the till. And it came all the way down across the food and down uh, out of the canteen and right around the corner and around into the corridor of the ship. And I stood there like a well-behaved husband, duly getting my wife a fish supper. And the queue was going up further and further and further along. And then I, then I got to the end of the queue where I could see the till and I could see the food. And I began to smell the food. Now the ship at this point was going like this. I mean, quite literally like this. It was late at night. You could see the stars. You could see the sea. And you could see darkness. That was, all you could see. That was how it was, the whole journey. It was as rough as could be. And I started to feel a little bit queasy when I smelt the food. And so I thought to myself, you know what? I don't think I'll just have uh, fish and chips. I'll just have the chips. And then I moved a few steps forward and noticed there were people grab, had their food, they'd pay for it, and then they'd set it on a table and run away. And I thought, why would they do that? Why, are they, why aren't they eating their food? But then I began to feel a little bit worse and... And I thought, oh, you know what? I don't think I'll even have the chips. I'll just get something for Hazel. And so I moved up the line a little bit closer. And people were still throwing their food down and dashing off. And, uh, you know, I just carried on. And I thought, no, I've got to get there. I've got to get this, get this fish supper and get it back to my new wife. Otherwise, I'll be a failure as a husband. And I got right up there. I was literally within two or three individuals of being served. And I was just overcome with seasickness. And I could not face even buying her fish and chips. And so I just dashed. I dashed back to where she was. And I was as green as could be. You can imagine it. I just felt awful. And uh, she, and this is what I mean, when, uh, how, how, how it was a sign of how our, our marriage was going to start. She says to me, not how you doing or you look awful. Where's my fish and chips, she says. <laughs> That's what she says. Where's my fish and chips? And I told her this story. And did she show me any sympathy? No, she did not. But uh, anyway, uh, nevertheless, it was a terrible night. I always remember it. I always remember how rough that sea was. And I've been on similar crossings. And, uh, and I've subsequently learned how to, how to handle that for the most part. But, but it's a terrible thing when you're caught up in a storm. And so these disciples were caught up in a storm. And it was no ordinary storm. There was no way these disciples, with their limited resources, could have foretold the coming of events of this storm. And, and that's life, friends. Life can be fine one moment. You can just be sailing along and making progress and everything's going swimmingly and you're having a nice time and, and everything seems to be in order in your life. And then in a moment, 
It's all turned around. Everything becomes topsy-turvy as a raging storm descends upon us. You see, that storm might be channeled by means of a phone call. You could be sitting at home one night and just minding your own business, having a nice time, maybe sitting there with your family, watching a nice movie or, or playing a, a board game or doing something that was fun. And, and then all of a sudden a phone call comes in and you say, I've got to go, so-and-so's in the hospital. I've got to go, somebody's caught up in an accident. Something terrible's happened. And you're thrust all of a sudden into the storm. And, and that storm may threaten everything you hold dear. It could threaten your, your, your health. It could threaten your home. It could threaten your family. It could threaten your livelihood. It could threaten your marriage. That storm may come as this storm came, as a bolt out of the blue, without warning, without mercy, without respect for you, without favor of person, without any thought about your dreams or, or your ambitions. The storm is a crisis in life. Any crisis, call it what you will, redundancy or cancer or stress or depression or bereavement or marital breakdown, it's a crisis. And when you're in the midst of the storm, let me tell you something. You think to yourself, I can't wait to get out of this. You feel like there's no way out of it. And there's certainly no immunity from storms because you're a Christian. I want to say that to you tonight because there are some preachers that will tell you if you trust Christ, all your troubles are over. Let me tell you something. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible doesn't promise us that our storms will be over if we become Christians. Listen, if that was the case, everybody would be a Christian, I should think. No, Christians are as subject to, to the troubles in life as anybody else. This world is a world of trouble. It's a world of hardship. It's a world of struggle and hurting and suffering. And I'm sorry to tell you this. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're not going to escape those things. The Bible says, yet man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. It says man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. These sinking disciples were in trouble. They were bailing out water as fast as they could possibly do. And yet with all the ship was filling up faster than their effort. They were sinking. They were staring death in the face. And all the while the Lord was sleeping. And it seemed to them that he was careless, that he was indifferent, that he was unresponsive to their particular need. And so they cried out a wonderful cry, Lord, save us, we perish. What a prayer. Mark puts it this way, Master, carest thou not that we perish? He said, don't you care? Jesus, don't you care? Don't you love us? Aren't you moved by our trouble? Aren't you concerned by our need? Don't you see the, 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 the difficulty we're in? Can you not see that we're fearing for our very lives here? I wonder, is that how you feel in a crisis? Is that how you think in your storm? I wonder, do you feel as though God is somehow indifferent or aloof to your plight or ignorant of your need or uncaring of your situation? The storm can be a crisis even for the saints. But the storm is also of a concern to the sinner. I want you to go to Mark's gospel again, the chapter 4. And I want you to notice a little comment that Mark makes. An observation that seems to be lost on Matthew 
in his account. But it's an interesting little statement in verse 36. Right at the end of verse 36, he makes this little observation. And he says this of this journey. Not only was the Lord and his disciples out on a ship crossing Galilee. And by the way, if you've been to Israel, you'll know Galilee is not a wide, wide body of water. Uh, you, can, you can see one shore from the other quite clearly and quite easily. And so it says here, and there were also, right at the end of verse 36, and there were also with him other little ships. Now here's the difference between those ships and the disciples' ship. It's a simple difference. The difference is that Jesus wasn't in those ships. It's just as simple as that. He wasn't in those ships. And people who are not Christians, well, they have storms in life too. They have problems the same as anybody else. They have heartaches. They have hurts. They have struggles. They have trials. They have difficulties. They experience the same storms in these little boats as Jesus and his disciples were experiencing in the bigger boat. But here's the thing, friends. I'd rather be in the storm with him than be in the storm without him. I'd rather be in the storm with him than be in the storm without him. And that's where so many folks are this evening. Their hearts are about to explode with anguish and their spirits are about to be crushed underneath the great burden that has befallen them. Their lives are in tatters. Their minds are in fear. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you're burdened. Maybe you're crushed. Maybe you're disturbed. Maybe you're fearful. Maybe you feel like your life is just sinking under. But Christ isn't in your boat. You're not saved. You're not saved. That's why so many tonight in our society are in total despair. They don't know where to turn to. And more importantly than that, they don't know who to turn to. You know, the suicide rates in our country are absolutely tragic. We have the highest suicide rate in the entire United Kingdom. Last year there were 237 suicide deaths in Northern Ireland. One third of those sadly were young men under the age of 30 years of age. And, and you think about our young men today and, and you know why are they feeling such despair? Well I think they feel such despair because they've been stripped of purpose and they've been stripped of worth, and they've been stripped of hope. Listen, if you grow up in, in a home and you go through a school system that tells you that you're nothing better than an evolved monkey, that you're just an animal, that there is no God, that this is all there is, and you may as well accept that. Let me tell you, you lose hope. You lose a sense of purpose. If you're just a machine, a, a bunch of chemicals that have gathered together that exist for a certain period of time and then die off to make room for another bunch of chemicals that are coming behind you, let me tell you, that's, that leaves you with nihilism. That gives you a sense of nothingness. There's no hope in that. That's where a lot of young men are in our society today. That's why so many are on drugs and so many are taken with alcohol. Society wants to emasculate them. And feeds them a diet of nihilism from infancy onwards. A young man by the name of Patrick Kelly, 15 years old, wrote this poem. And he wrote it with the soul of a young man who, like so many other teenagers, was troubled by his life and the world around him. And he was searching, but there was no one to help him. No one with a word of hope. And he wrote this. The sky is blue and way too high. I wish I could get beyond the sky. 
There's things up there better than dope. Is there some chance? Is there some hope? Stoned crazy, I'm out of my mind. I know there's something I cannot find. A home and love. Is that what I've lost? I've got to get there, whatever the cost. Is there a ticket I need to buy to get off this earth and into the sky? I hear there's a God in the ocean of blue. And he's calling and crying for me and you. Is there a ticket I need to buy to get off this earth and into the sky? Then the young man took his little poem and he touched it to his shirt. And he walked 40 feet from his home and he hanged himself. Friends, if we fail to accept Christ and problems come, we'll be prone to thinking there is no meaning, no hope, no help. We need a friend in the wind. We need a captain in the boat. My goodness, the storm may be furious, but I'd rather ride the storm with Jesus than ride the storm without him. But then I want you to notice in verse 26 of our reading that the storm is contained by Jesus. It's a crisis for the saint. It's a concern for the sinner. But it's contained by the Savior. Look in verse 25. Or sorry, verse uh, 26. And he saith unto them, Why are you faithful, or fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, I want you to notice in this count how the Lord responds. Think about the scene. Imagine, imagine you're out in that boat. You hear the, the roar of the, of the wind and the pounding of the waves and the, the cries of the disciples and the crash of the thunder and the crack of the lightning. And Jesus is asleep in the lower part of the ship. You know, you've got all of this noise going on around you. You know, if you've ever been, uh, if you've ever been on a cabin on a ship, and you again, maybe you've been on the Liverpool crossing overnight, and you get into your cabin and you lie in your bed, and and you hear all these creaks and groans, and and you hear all of the uh, all of the noises of the ship inside that cabin, and that's even without the storm. Can you imagine how it sounded in a wooden ship, in a relatively small ship? I mean, this ship would have probably only housed about 12 to 15 men. It wasn't a particularly large boat. And you can imagine the, the sound of it, the wood, you know, being thumped by the waves. You can hear the creaking and the groaning of the vessel. You can hear the cries of the disciples, keep building, keep building. And they're working as hard as they can. And Jesus is asleep. But it was none of those sounds that awoke the Savior. He wasn't woke up by the wind. He wasn't woke up by the rain. He wasn't woke up by the sound of the ship falling apart or the crash of thunder or the crack of lightning. No, he only arose when those men called out for help. You see, the Lord may not respond to the storm, but he will always hear the call of people Above the storm. Listen to what the psalmist said. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver thee. And thou shalt glorify me. Psalm 86. In the day of trouble I will call upon thee. For thy will answer me. 
Psalm 107, 13. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. Psalm 34, 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. You see, our Lord, he knew that the, the storm was coming. He realized that they were going to run into this trouble. In fact, in Mark, he says, let us go to the other side. He was anticipating getting to the other shore uh, safely. But he didn't delay the departure. He didn't say, well, hold on a minute. There's going to be a storm. Hang on a minute. There's a whirlwind coming. He allowed them to feel its fury. He allowed them to live in fear. He appeared to be unconcerned about their predicament. But he was with them in the storm. And as long as he was with them, There was hope. And that's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A believer and an unbeliever. Someone who's saved and someone who's not saved. You see, the Christian always has the hope of Christ within. But the believer has no hope. The unbeliever has no hope. So the Lord answers their cry and he stills the storm. It says that he arose and rebuked the winds. That's what it says. Verse 26, Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. Now think about this for the moment. It's not the most ridiculous thing that anybody could be seen to do, to rebuke the natural world. You know, I imagine most of us are familiar with the story of King Canute. Remember the story of King Canute? You probably read about it when you were in primary school. King Canute was actually a real king. He lived around 1016, I think it was. He was king of England, king of Denmark, king of Norway. A real king. He was a Christian king, a genuine Christian king. He was a true believer in the God of the Bible. It said that he was a very pious king. He was a very godly king. Well, according to the story, King Canute was actually a very proud and arrogant king. And he thought he was divine. And he went out one day and waded into the sea at the shore and commanded the sea uh, to go out, the tide, uh, to return back when the tide was coming in. And eventually the tide was up around his chest and he had to be rescued. But that's not actually what happened. What happened in the story is this. That's how we always perceive it. But what happened in the story was this. King Canute was idolized by his subjects. And so to show them that even though he was a pious and godly person, he was not God, he went to the sea and commanded the sea to turn back. And he showed to them that there was a greater king, a greater power upon the throne than he. You see, nothing could be so foolish as trying to return the tide. Nothing could be so silly as trying to rebuke the wind. But here we have the Lord Jesus chastising the wind. And how can you chastise something as insensible as wind? Well, it's like rebuking your car for not working, isn't it? I've done that sometimes. You've probably done that sometimes. Stood there and kicked the tire and said, stupid thing. But it didn't make any difference, did it? The car didn't just suddenly kick up and start going. I was at a meeting one time and the the projector wasn't working. And the person who was leading the meeting said, "Uh, let's rebuke the spirit of technology. I thought, let's rebuke the spirit of stupidity. (laughs) What a nonsense. What a nonsense that is. 
You know, to rebuke something that's, that's inanimate, to, to produce something, you know, is, uh, to rebuke, reduce, uh, rebuke something that is insensible. Uh, it's like rebuking a light bulb for not burning or, or rebuking your fridge because it's not cold enough or, or, or whatever. It makes little sense until we realize when it comes to this particular story and the rebuke of the wind that there is an influence over the air. You see, in the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul speaks of the, the devil, of Satan. And he says this to the Ephesian church, Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You see, there was something in this wind that was seen by the eye of Christ that was unseen to the human eye. Friends, listen to me. Satan may well be at work in your storm. Satan can make life miserable for you. Satan can make life hard for us. I believe in Satan. I don't see how in the world that you cannot believe in Satan because the Bible tells us there's a Satan. Some people say, oh, that's just mythology. And they have this idea that the devil is this red, uh, red cloaked figure with horns and a, and a, and a fork and, and, a, and, a, and a pointed tail and he's stoking the fires of hell. Let me tell you something. That's not how the Bible portrays the devil. The Bible portrays the devil as trying to stay out of hell. The Bible portrays the devil as a very clever, a very intelligent, a very able uh, spirit being uh, who has a very ma- a malignant influence upon uh, this world. And so in that respect, the Lord sees something in the storm that his disciples didn't see. And when he arises and rebukes the winds and the sea, there's a great calm. You know, Mark quotes him as saying this, peace be still. That's a lovely King James speak. Peace be still. That's what men should say to their wives when they're giving you a hard time, men. Just look her in the eyes and say, peace, be still. You know that's not going to end well, don't you? (laughs) Well, that's how the King James Bible translators translated it. But here's what it literally says, muzzle it. That's what it literally says in the Greek. Muzzle it. Now try that with your wife. (laughs) That'll even end worse. But anyway, uh, muzzle it. Be quiet. Enough out of you. You see, he spoke to those elements as though they were a dog barking in the night. He stood on that ship and he just said, Muzzle it! Enough. But understand more than that, this is a phrase that technically relates to the dispossession of a demon of its power. You know, there were demonic forces at work in this storm. And all the while, we may be blaming God for our troubles, but actually Satan may be at the back of your troubles. Well, I want to say this as we close. The storm is a commentary on our state. You see, storms of life are very revealing. Storms expose weakness. Storms reveal human frailty. We've all experienced the power of storms. What did those storms do? You know, where they perhaps tore tiles off our roofs or they, uh, they flattered, flat, flattened our fences or they uh, blew over trees. Uh, a number of years ago, we went on holiday and we came back to find a tree had blown down on top of our shed and our shed was crushed beneath the, the bough of this great tree. Storm exposes poor workmanship. 
It exposes shallow roots. It exposes decaying timbers. And the storms of life are no different. They reveal our faithlessness. Notice what the Lord says there in verse 26. He says, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Now that might seem a little bit harsh, given these men are in danger of losing their lives as they understand it. But think about it for a moment. Why does he say to them, O ye of little faith? Well, first of all, because they failed to trust his promise and that which he had commanded them when he said to them, let's depart unto the other side. If Jesus says to you, let's depart to the other side, guess where you're going to go? You're going to go to the other side. You're not going to drown in the middle of the lake. You're not going to be, uh, you're not going to be overwhelmed by the waves. You're going to get to the other side. If he said, let's go to the other side, you're going to the other side. My friends, when it comes to the matter of salvation, if Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, listen, he is the way, the truth, and the life. If he says, no man comes to the Father but by me, understand that you will get to the Father by him. But a lot of people just don't put any stock in that. And they, they deny the promise of God upon their lives. You know, clearly the Lord intended for those in the storm to arrive, storm or no storm. And let me say this to you tonight, if you're a Christian, if you're in the storm and if the waves are beating around you and you feel like you're going to sink and are ready to abandon ship, don't. You'll get there. You'll arrive. So they fail to trust his promise. And then they fail to rely upon his presence. He was there with them. That's the key thing. He is there with them. You know, one of the great titles of Christ, and I think it was Andrew who was speaking this morning, I think he said there's 300 titles, something like that, 300 titles of Christ in the Scriptures. And one of those titles is one that we use at Christmas time, Emmanuel, God with us. You know, sometimes we get into the storms of life and we forget that God is with us in the storm. That he's right there in our little ship. What did he promise? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now, that's a promise for Christians. If you're not a Christian, that's not a promise to you because he's not in your life. But if you're a Christian, that's a promise for your life. And, and so they, they failed to trust his promise. They failed to rely upon his presence. And they failed to take account of his power. Could he not perform a miracle? Let me ask you a question. Is God up to your storm? Is he powerful enough for your storm? Do you really feel that your circumstances have gotten the better of him? that he can't work it out, that he can't get you through, that he's as overwhelmed by it all as you are, that he's throwing up his hands in the heaven and saying, oh my goodness, I wasn't expecting this. No, that's not the God that I know. He can just say, peace, be still. That's all it takes. And the storm is calmed. The storm is passed. You know, French fishermen have a brief prayer that humbly acknowledges God's control over all of nature and life. And before they go out in the sea, they pray this, God, your sea is so great and my boat is so small. Your sea is so great, my boat is so small. 
And in recognizing that the sea belongs to God, uh, those fishermen also recognize that ultimately God is their only source of safety as they go out onto their boats. Well, in calming the Sea of Galilee, Jesus taught his disciples not only about his power over nature, uh, but also about external and internal peace. The lesson about external peace was the easier of the two. He stopped the storm. Externally, they were at rest. But dealing with the storm that was beating inside the breast, of the disciples was a little bit more difficult and so fear had replaced their faith. Listen, if you're a Christian, Christ dwells in you. He's the creator of the sea, the captain of the vessel. He's the commander of the waves. There's no reason to fear whatever life throws at you. But if you're not a Christian, well, listen, here's the bad news. It's you against the world that's it you're on your own you're in one of those other little ships you know the bible doesn't tell us what was being said in those other little ships but i imagine there were a few cries in some of them as well if you're not a christian it's you against the world every storm is a personal battle for survival you need jesus And you need him, first of all, as your Savior. You need to recognize that he's the only one who can forgive us of our sins and make us right with God and reconcile us to God. He's the only one who can gift us eternal life. He's the only one, indeed, who can fill our lives with hope and with purpose and with worth. And you need not just to know him as your Savior, but you need to also know his presence in your life. The disciples were able to call on Jesus because he was with them. They were able to see him move in power because he was with them. They were able to experience his peace because he was with them. Is Christ with you tonight? Is Christ in your life tonight? If he isn't, You are in no place to weather life's storms. Tonight, you should cry out even this little prayer that we read in a few short words in verse 25. Lord, save us. We perish. Lord, save me. I'm perishing. And listen to me. He'll hear your cry. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening. We're going to sing...